There's a question I like to ask people from time to time, very broadly, namely, what is Christianity? Just broad, general question. So if someone walked up to you and asked you, just, can you explain Christianity? What is it? What it's all about? What would you say? How deep is your understanding of the Christian faith? How would you describe or define Christianity? A good place to start is what, what Christianity is not. Christianity is not a list of things you can't do anymore and things you have to start doing. Christianity is not a task on the calendar. It's not church. It's not a religion, per se, like all the others. Rather, Christianity is uniquely described by a person, Jesus Christ. More specifically, it's about knowing this person, Jesus Christ. Some people get this off the bat. Some people don't. Some are obsessed with Christ himself, and others are preoccupied with the stuff around Jesus. Many go wrong because they base their views of Christianity on Christians. They go to a church, and they see Christians. They, they see what they do. You, you're supposed to do this, and then you don't do that, and you, you do this over here and not that, and they just fall in line, and that's how a cultural Christian is born. They're merely acting in accordance with how other Christians generally act. But in doing so, they've missed the heart of Christianity. They've missed having a living and abiding relationship with Christ. In James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Philippians, he tells how in October 1967, the Soviet Union's launched a probe that was meant to crash on the surface of Venus and send back temperature and, and pressure readings. And the space probe ceased transmitting 3,774 miles from the, the core of, of Venus, presumably because it had struck the surface. The information the probe gathered about temperature and pressure was really remarkable. It suggested there could be life on Venus. Now, however, scientists know that the radius of Venus is only 3,759 miles, which just means that the probe ceased transmitting while it was still 15 miles away from the surface. And consequently, all the data the probe gave about the temperature and the pressure was just way off. No one cares what the temperature is 15 miles in the atmosphere. They wanted to know what it was at the surface. So all their readings were wrong. All their conclusions about Venus were, were just way out there. didn't have anything to do with the actual surface of the planet. And Boyce then wrote, writes, quote, In the same way, thousands of well-meaning people stop receiving data when they are miles from the heart of Christianity. For many people, a knowledge of Christianity stops at contact with those who claim to be Christians. They identify Christianity with so-called Christian character. And since many believers are far from what God intends them to be, this data gives a false impression. Other people actually get into the atmosphere, perhaps as far as the organization, and then conclude that Christianity is the visible church. Other people get as far as the ceremonies of the church and often pass for Christians because they participate properly. Some people actually come as close as the creeds. They can recite them. Unfortunately, this too is less than Christianity, important as the creeds may be, end quote. And so as you're here this morning, where has your understanding of Christianity stopped? Are you still out there in the atmosphere thinking Christianity is all about rules and regulations and doing this and not that? Are you maybe a little bit closer? You think Christianity is about going to church and, and being in fellowship with other Christians? Where have you stopped short in your understanding of, of Christianity? Are you, have you made it to the surface? What is the surface? Well, it's Jesus. It's about 
Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. He is the heart of Christianity. He is the surface of the planet. And if you don't get this, you're going to misunderstand Christianity and you'll fall into a multitude of other errors. Christianity is about seeing and and savoring Christ as Lord. It's about knowing him and worshiping him. It's about treasuring him. And that, that changes everything. You live in light of that, that changes everything. And I think if there are ever one verse in the Bible that captures this heart of Christianity, it'd be found in Philippians chapter 1, the passage we have for this morning. So why don't you take your Bibles and open them now to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, as we know well by now, he's writing this from Rome in prison as he waits to stand trial before Caesar. We've also learned that the other Christians in Rome had differing reactions to Paul's imprisonment. Some, the majority, thankfully, were emboldened to preach Christ more without fear, following Paul's example. But there was this little group of people, of Christians, who were self-willed and self-centered, and they preached Christ for personal gain, and they saw Paul's imprisonment as their moment to strike. They could, you know, tear him down a little bit. They could build themselves up. And so we can gather that they, while Paul was in prison, they preached that it was a sign of God's judgment. You know, Paul, he just cares about himself and his own popularity. And, and God has him in jail because he's, he's judging him for being so self-centered. Makes us wonder what Paul's response to this would be. And, and he tells us that despite what they're doing, although he's not happy about what this second group is, is saying, he still finds reason to rejoice even though he's in prison, even though these people are are nipping at his heels. How? Well, for one, he says, at least they're preaching the true gospel. They may be motivated by by self-will and selfish ambition, but at least they're not false teachers. At least they're preaching the, the real Christ. So that's good. In addition, Paul knows, as he tells us, that he will be vindicated by God. He's confident in God to deliver him, knowing he won't be put to shame in anything, that he's truly lived not a self-exalting life, but a God-exalting life. And Paul expresses that response in verses 18 through 20, our passage from last week. But as we found, what makes his response even more remarkable is that he expects this deliverance to come, whether by life or by death. That's how he finishes verse 20, that he'll be delivered whether by life or by death. He's banking on God in this life and the next. And after this, Paul shifts gears a little bit and he starts to reflect on life and death. What is life and what is death? So the world, life is all about self and therefore death is the end of the line. So you lose everything. But Paul, however, he finds great hope in death. And the passage to follow, he actually takes it one step further. Not only does he find hope in death, he also finds gain in death. Most people think of death as loss. That's when you, you lose everything. But Paul describes death as gain. And so we find a very famous verse in the Bible, in our passage today, starting in Philippians 121, where he says, quite famously, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And with this one short verse, Paul cuts through all the fluff right to the heart of Christianity. Many people have called this the Christian manifesto. He gets, in just a few succinct words, he gets right to what 
Christianity is all about. It is to live Christ and to die as gain. However, when people hear this verse, they often have two questions. What does it mean and and how can it be? First, what does it mean when he says to live is Christ? That that sounds strange. It sounds incomplete. What, What does that really mean? And then how can it be to say death is gain? That's not how we normally think of death. So in what way is he contriving a, of death as gain? That doesn't make sense either. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, this is a life-altering verse. This verse represents that the surface of the planet, that the heart of Christianity, so to speak. And you need to get this. You need to get this if you want to know what Christianity is, is really all about. And you too have to be able to say along with Paul, for to me, not to you, but but to me as well, to live as Christ and to die as gain. This should be the the rallying cry of all Christians. Of course, first, you've got to know what he's even talking about. So let's see if we can help with that this morning. Today, our, our aim is to go through Philippians 1, 21 through 26, and make sense of this Christian manifesto to see what it really means and how it is meant to impact and and radically reorient our lives for christ now admittedly we'll spend the the lion's share of our time just trying to unpack verse 21 but still let's see if we can answer these two questions and get to the heart of christianity that you may learn to lead a radical life for christ yourself so with that let's get started verse 21 to unpack this we've got two questions The first being, what does it mean? Keeping it simple, what does it mean? We've got to get the meaning of this verse right before we can proceed any further. Specifically, we want to know what Paul means when he says, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. People are confused. It sounds strange and just strange wording. What, What does he mean by this? Notice how he begins, though, verse 21. He starts off saying, for to me. This is emphatic. It's placed forward in the Greek. He's giving us insight into his own soul. He's telling us how he views the Christian life. And since since God was inspiring Paul as he writes this, I want to know what he says. I want to know how he understands the Christian life. And surely he has his opponents in view when he says this. Remember, these people were claiming to speak for Paul. They claimed he he was self-centered. They claimed all he cared about was his own popularity and prestige. But here in verse 21, he is rejecting that. He's saying, no, that, that's not what his life is about. His life is not about himself. It's not about his popularity, his position or power. He, he's not living a self-motivated, a self-willed life. So he says, for to me, this is what my life is all about. This is what I live for. This is what drives me. And so we ask, what is it? What does Paul actually live for? And so he says, for to me, to live is Christ. He pours out his heart and says, for me to live is Christ. And soon we'll see how this is to be normative, meaning every authentic Christian should likewise be able to say, well, for me too, for me too to live is Christ. Now I think... We have trouble understanding this verse because technically it is grammatically incomplete. It's missing a helping verb. We don't normally talk like this. We expect Paul to say something like, for to me to live is to love Christ 
or to live is to worship Christ or to follow Christ or to know Christ or to obey Christ. We expect some verb in there to complete the thought to, to tell us what he means, but he doesn't give us any. He just says to live is Christ. And then that's strange. Why doesn't he add more? Why doesn't he tell us exactly what he means? Well, I think Paul is telling us exactly what he means here. Paul purposefully does not narrow this phrase down because there's no single word comprehensive enough to really capture what he means. No single word gathers everything Paul wants to say here so he doesn't limit himself. It's like painting an entire picture with just one broad brushstroke and get it all under there. And Paul is saying that his life, physical and spiritual, is summed up in Christ. It's just his life is Christ. One commentator writes, quote, Paul views his life as totally determined and controlled by his own love for and commitment to Christ. So to live is Christ. What does it mean? It means living radically centered on Christ. It means being saturated with Christ, like a sponge that is filled with water, can't hold any more. It means being consumed with Christ. It means that Christ is the controlling principle in your life. And I think that's a good one. Christ is the controlling principle of your life. I knew this guy in college, and he would always say the most inappropriate things. You may know someone who they'll say out loud what everyone else is kind of already thinking. He would say the things that no one else is thinking. And after a while, we could tell when he was about to say something crazy, and so we would stop him and say, just just put it through the filter. This man just put it through the filter. It's like he had a thought, and it, it, it bypassed a little filter in your brain that says, don't say this out loud, and he would just say it. And so we would just tell him, you put it through the filter. Just, just put it through the filter. I see a lot of people looking at others right now. <laughs> but in a way, Christians should do this too. We should put everything through the filter of Christ. Too often we act on impulse or we speak on impulse. We, we don't think. But the one who lives Christ has a filter. Christ is his controlling life principle. Christ is the filter. And so with every word you ask, am I saying this to the glory of Christ? With every deed you ask, am I doing this to the glory of Christ? With every thought you ask, am I even thinking this to the glory of Christ? And so every word and deed and and thought is being taken captive to the obedience of Christ. If this sounds too radical, well, sorry, this is what it looks like to, to live on the surface of the planet. This is the the heart of Christianity. Paul says over in Colossians 1.18 that Christ, he's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You see that? God's intention, God has seen fit for Christ, the Son, to be preeminent, to have first place in all things. And therefore, it's not a stretch to say that Christians should make Christ first place in all things in their life. But even that I find people don't quite get. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to have first place in your life? I think you hear most people say, well, you know, I've got my life in Jesus. He's on top. He's my number one priority. 
So my, my life list would be, you know, number one, Jesus, you know, the Lord, number two, family, three, you know, work, four, recreation, whatever, you go down the list. But Jesus, he's on top. That is not what this looks like. That That is wrong. This first means that Jesus, he's not just number one on your list. He's also number two and number three and number four and five and ten and a hundred and three hundred and three. It means that every single aspect or category of your life, Jesus has first place. He has first place in relationships, first place in jobs, first place in school, first place in work, first place in church, first place in Bible reading, first place in prayer, first place in what movies you watch, first place in what music you listen to, first place in whom you hang out with, first place in your hobbies, first place in your marriage, first place in in everything. I trust you get the picture. Every single category you have in life, Jesus is to be supreme. He is to have first place in all things, which is to say that he governs all things. It is his will that impacts and controls everything you do. Now, that being said, does that sound like your life? Because I think this is very close to what it means to live Christ. You treasure Christ. And so the guiding principle behind everything you do in life is, is Christ. It is his will that you are seeking to live. A lot of Christians compartmentalize life. I think we're all guilty from time to time. You know, at home we have these four-by-four four Ikea bookshelves, and they've got little cubes you put in them, and you just, you just compartmentalize everything. I think sadly we, we treat the Christian life like that. You've got one drawer labeled school, one's labeled work, one's family, one's marriage, one's hobbies, one's you know, vacation, whatever it's going to be. At the very top of the storage unit, you've got a special drawer. It's labeled Jesus. He's got the best one. It's on top. It's even made of gold. It's great. But Jesus doesn't live in the marriage drawer. He doesn't go to the, the work drawer, the hobbies drawer. Sometimes he'll visit the church drawer. He never goes in the entertainment drawer. And so people compartmentalize life, and Jesus is, in essence, absent from the vast majority of their lives. They call themselves Christians, but they find themselves doing very unchristian things. It can happen to all of us, and you wonder why. Well, it's because Jesus is not involved in their actions. He's nowhere to be found. He's tucked away in his little drawer. You pull him out, maybe on Sunday morning, and you put him back. It's pretty much the exact opposite of what it means to make Jesus first in your life. This is the the opposite of what it means to live Christ. Instead, you open up the school drawer, Jesus is on top. You open up the work drawer, he's on top. The marriage drawer, he's on top. Every drawer you open, every part of your life, he's on top and he he governs everything below. You're living him out. He's guiding what you do, influencing what you do, because you want to live Christ, right? You want to live for the glory and praise of his name. This is living on the surface of the planet. This is Christianity. Have you got it wrong? Or maybe do you just fall short? We, we all do. But are you still stuck somewhere in the atmosphere? Do you, do you not get this? Do you compartmentalize life, leaving Jesus out of the majority of your decisions and actions? And if so, well, we'll get it right and start living Christ. Paul got it right because Paul understood that Christianity is not a religion per se, but it is this relationship. Paul knew that Christianity was not about doing a bunch of stuff, hoping to 
get your way into heaven. Rather, Christianity is about having this vital union with Christ who saved you. It's about this relationship with him and living in light of this relationship. You know, in the New Testament, the number one way Christians are identified, it's not by the the word Christian or believer. It's by the little phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Biblically, that's our chief identity. We are those who are in Christ. We are united to him. And you know how that works. How entering into a union relationship changes your life. Well, just think of marriage. When you get married, you're entering into a vital union. And that relationship, it it changes how you live. So, for example, if you have any bad habits, those have a way of of changing when you get married. And I can think of myself, when we first got married, even still today, it would be putting dirty clothes in the hamper instead of on the floor. And what I still don't understand, I think women just don't understand, dirty clothes belong on the floor. That's where they're supposed to be. I don't understand otherwise, but because of my marriage relationship, I have changed the way I live or tried. And there are tons of examples like this. When you get married, think of all the things you stop doing and all the things you start doing. You stop leaving the toilet seat up. You start putting the cap on the toothpaste, although never a problem for us. You know, what kind of savage leaves the cap off of the toothpaste? (laughs) You stop eating dinner alone. You start eating dinner together. You stop eating out where you want to eat. You start eating out where both of you want to eat. Or otherwise, you just fight about where to eat. You stop hanging out all day with your single friends. You start hanging out with your spouse. And, you know, the list goes on. It just comes with the territory. You're in this new union, one flesh relationship, and it changes how you live. Now, what if you had a friend, though, and, and you ask your friend, what is marriage? And they respond by saying, well, marriage is not leaving the toilet seat up and putting the cap on the toothpaste and not hanging out with your single friends and putting your dirty clothes in the hamper. That's marriage. You think your friend has really captured the essence of marriage. If that's what marriage is, it's no wonder our society hates marriage. But that's not marriage. Marriage is a relationship with your spouse. It's a life-consuming, God-glorifying, vital union with your spouse. And that relationship, it's meant to shape your life. And Christianity is the same way. It's not about all the things you start doing and stop doing when you become a Christian. It's about this living union relationship with the head, Christ. Enjoying that relationship with Christ. We've been united to him by faith, so Christ becomes our treasure. And so you just live in light of of this, of your new treasure. Paul treasured Christ above all else in life. So he could say, for me to live is Christ. This mindset changed his life, changed his ministry, changed everything. To live as Christ. Is it starting to make a little bit more sense? Remember, we're starting by asking the, the simple question in Philippians 1.21. First, what does it mean? What does it mean when he says to live is Christ? And we gather it means that the Christian life is all about being consumed and controlled by a relationship with Christ. It's about treasuring Christ and then simply living in light of this new treasured relationship you have with the Lord. But Paul's not done. And so we have a second question. Question number two, how can it be? How can it be? And we ask this question of the second half of verse 21. 
where he says to live is Christ and then to die is gain. And what's, what's that all about? Such a phrase or thought immediately gets people wondering, how can death be gain? It's such a foreign thought to the world, death is gain. We think of death as loss. It's the end of the line. You lose everything. It's just all over. And aren't we supposed to fear death? But we, we find Paul actually longing for death. And he sees death as gain. Why is that? He's not the only person. Even in the ancient world, there were many who viewed death as gain for a different reason. They viewed death as gain simply because their lives were miserable and death was a simple escape from the misery of this world. But that's not Paul. Paul saw death as gain for an entirely different reason. Yes, death was a release from earthly troubles, but it was more to that. More than that, Paul looked forward to death because in death he got Jesus. He looked forward to death because even in death he could continue his relationship with Jesus and even have a better relationship with Jesus, a relationship finally unhindered by sin. One commentator writes, quote, Life that is in Christ is not destroyed by death, it is only increased and enriched by death, end quote. Another writes, quote, Death is gained because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ, end quote. So Paul had no fear in death. For most people, death is their number one fear. Their number two fear is their loved ones being taken from them by death. But Paul knew that not even death could separate him from his Savior. I mean, you know Romans 8.38. Not even death can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Paul had no fear. Rather, he anticipated death. Death is simply for Christians. Death is simply the gateway to Christ. Like all who want to visit the king, you have to pass through the, the castle gates. For believers, death is merely the threshold we must pass, pass through to see the king. And so what is there really to fear if death is simply the, the necessary step to be with Christ? What is there to fear if you truly believe? Nothing. Let me read for you Revelation 7, 15 through 17. John says, For this reason they are before the throne of God, talking about believers, And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. If that's true, what's there to fear about that? Nothing if you are united to Christ by faith. If you reject Christ, well, then you have great reason to fear because you will know only judgment upon death. And so even now, if any are here who don't know him, I urge you to repent and believe. Even today, make today the day of your salvation and know this life he offers, life here, life thereafter. And for those who do believe in him, only glory awaits. And so Paul says to die is gain. Is that something you can say? Can, can you say in any measure, to die is gain? Or to put it another way, everyone says they want to go to heaven when they die. Why? Again, someone comes up to you and says, why do you want to go to heaven when you die? What would you say? 
It's a very telling question. If your answer is, well, because in heaven you get to live forever and you get all this cool stuff and you get to see the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem and maybe you get to fly and like explore the universe. If that's your answer, you're still far from the surface of the planet and you're still away from the heart of Christianity. You know Paul's answer. Paul wanted to go to heaven simply because that's where Jesus was. That's it. He just wanted to go and be with his Lord for the rest of time. He didn't care about the stuff. Wherever Jesus was, that's where he wanted to go. And, and keep in mind, that's, that's what makes heaven special, is that God and the Lamb dwell there together with the saints. To die is gain. How can it be? For the world, it can't be. Those in the world, they live treasuring the things of the world, So for them, death is lost because death means they lose all their treasure. You can't take anything with you wherever you go. But Christians are not those who treasure this world. We treasure Christ. And so because of that, for us, death is gain because death means we get more of our treasure. You get more of Christ. You gain Christ. And this is how believers throughout the ages, like Paul, can smile even in the face of of death, because passing out of this world means entering the presence of the Lord, and you gain what you're looking for. Now, as important as this eternal perspective may be, don't get the impression that it makes this life worthless. If death is gained, some might ask, well, you know, why should you keep on living, especially when the going gets tough? But no, Paul tells us, instructs us, this life still has value, Because the Lord has placed us here. He's left us here. He wants us here for now. This is where, we, after all, we serve him. This is where we get the chance to live Christ. So although it's true we can't wait for the glories to come, you should embrace the life the Lord has given to you and live it to the fullest for Christ for as long as you have. And this helps, helps explain the rest of the passage, which we're just looking over briefly. Look at verse 22. He says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. We see here how Paul views his life as one of just labor for the Lord. He understands this life, it's your only chance to evangelize, to make disciples, to grow in sanctification. All those labors will be complete in heaven. So embrace them now to the glory of God. In Paul's case, he was convinced that the Lord had more work for him to do, so he was confident that he was going to be released from prison. Now, it's not like he really had a choice, and he doesn't know for sure. He had no special revelation telling him he's going to get out. But we see here a window into the competing desires of his heart. To live on in the flesh meant more fruitful labor, and that's a good thing. To live is good. Live with all your might for Christ, and he knew that was a good option, and he was convinced that the Lord would would let him remain. But he also knew it's still better It's still better to go. It's still better to depart and be with Christ, he says. 
Obviously, the word depart, it's a euphemism for, for death. The word was used of a ship picking up anchor and just sailing off. And Paul knows, just sailing off into the sunset with the Lord, that's, that's the better deal. In fact, he calls it very much better. It's a triple comparative, meaning he just stacks these words on top of each other, saying, this, this is the best thing. The best thing is just to depart and be with the Lord. It's what we're, we're waiting for. Paul knows death is not the end. It's the beginning of a new experience. And for believers, that new experience is fellowship with Christ, unhindered by sin. And Paul wants that. I trust you want that too. And so we value this life. We're going to live this life for Christ, but all the while with this eternal perspective, awaiting this eternal life. Paul understood eternal life. He knew what eternal life was all about. It's another telling question. What is eternal life? What's eternal life all about? Most people think eternal life simply means living forever. That's not right. That's not what eternal life is all about. Do you know how Jesus himself defined eternal life? Write the verse down, John 17.3. He defines eternal life. John 17.3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says eternal life is all about knowing God and knowing Christ. Most people think of eternal life as a quantity of life that lasts forever. And that is true, but recognize that's not it because that's a curse for those who are in hell, that their life doesn't end, that that's part of their judgment. But rather, Jesus tells us eternal life is more of a quality of life than just a quantity of life. It is life to the fullest. It is life with God. Christian life and Christian afterlife are all about knowing the Lord, which is to say, being in this eternally blessed relationship with the Creator. And going back to the marriage example and just taking it in a different direction. Imagine you're engaged. Your wedding is, is fast approaching. You've already rented the apartment you're going to be living in, and so you start furnishing it with all this new stuff. And for the first time in your life, you own all this stuff. You've got like a TV and a couch and a desk and a refrigerator. You're officially an adult. You own a refrigerator. And you know when you get married, you're going to get more presents. You're going to get like silverware and china and cups and towels and all this stuff dish racks and you name it. <laughs> now the wedding is just a few days away and you're, you're beaming with excitement. And one of your friends asks you, like, why are you so excited to get married? And you say, well, I'm going to get all this stuff. I'm, I'm going to have a fridge and a TV. I have my own apartment. And when we get married, we're going to get like dishes and silverware and all these presents and it's going to be great. And like before, again, you would say this person is really missing the point of marriage. He's really missing the essence of marriage. The whole point of marriage is that you get to be with your spouse. You get to enter this new one flesh abiding union with your spouse. It's not about the stuff. It's about the person. And Christianity is the same way. Heaven is the same way. A lot of Christians desperately desire to go to heaven, but not, not because they desperately desire to be with Christ. But Paul longed for heaven because he treasured Christ. And he wanted that wedding day to come, though, so to speak, that with the bride and the lamb to come, that he could be with him forever. 
And this is why Paul counted everything in this life as inconsequential in order that he might gain Christ. In fact, a verse coming up, we've got to look at it right now. If you're in Philippians 1, just, just turn the page to Philippians 3. Another monumental verse in Philippians. He talks about everything he counted as loss in order to gain Christ. And so Philippians 3, 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for him, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And there it is right there. Of all the worldly accomplishments he had, he, he counted them all as, as loss, all as rubbish. Why? They meant nothing compared to the surpassing value of simply knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. But don't, don't forget, that's eternal life, knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. And just think about what Paul gave up before his conversion to Christianity. He was like on his way to the top of Judaism. He gave up wealth, power, influence, his possession, prestige, social standing, good health, professional success, pretty much everything. Just a, a good middle class, upper class life. Gave it all up. He traveled for Christ, preached for Christ, suffered for Christ, imprisoned for Christ. Later, he would die for Christ. But this was nothing to Paul. He counted even his own life as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Can you say that? Put, put a value sheet in front of you. What's in the gain column? What's in the loss column? Where does your life fit? It's in the gain or loss. And Christians are those who take their own life, put it in the lost column, that they can gain Christ. And he's worth way more than that, worth everything. This is mere Christianity. This is discipleship as Jesus defined it. You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It's the only way. This is knowing Christ. Some people don't like this. They want to say to Paul, like, Paul, slow it down. Well, you try out some American Christianity. Just, yeah, have faith, believe in Jesus, but then just kick back, take it easy. While all this struggling and striving and suffering, just just slow down, play it a little easy. Why are you living so extreme for, for Jesus? And how do you think Paul would respond to that? I imagine he would say, I can't, because that's not knowing Jesus. That's saying you know him, but not actually knowing him. Remember, this relationship changes the way you live. If you're really in it, 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 you can't help but have it change your life. And those who know Christ are consumed with him and they don't really have a choice. Living Christ means knowing Christ, which may mean suffering for Christ or being in prison for Christ or dying for Christ. And Paul, the last thing he wants to be is lukewarm because he doesn't want to be spit out by the uh, one person he cares most about. 
I'm not saying Paul didn't enjoy life. Christians should be able to enjoy this life more than anyone on the planet. But Paul was willing to count all things as loss if it meant gaining Christ. The heart of Christianity, the surface of the planet, so to speak, it's about knowing Jesus. And I trust you get by now, knowing Jesus means more than simply believing that he existed. It's about being in a living and active relationship with Jesus by faith. So don't fall short in your understanding of Christianity. Don't get caught up in the stuff around Jesus, the ritual, the rules. Settle for nothing less than Christ himself. He must be the sun in your solar system around which everything else revolves. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I hope by now you better understand what it means and how it can be. I hope you've come to learn that the Christian life and the Christian afterlife, they're all about treasuring Christ. You have to come to believe in him and hold him dear as your highest treasure. That's what it means. And then, only then, only when Christ is your real treasure, will these two results become true for you. Then, for you, life will be Christ and death will be gain. All that's left to do now is to take it back to those first three words from verse 21, where he says, for to me. Again, all this is just Paul's personal testimony. It was true for him. We gather, though, that he's nailing it. This is the heart of Christianity. Therefore, this should be true for you and me as well. All disciples of Jesus should be able to say, for me, for me too, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So now you must ask, can you say it? You know what it means? You know how it can be? Can you say this as well? Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your heart? What is your heart given over to? What excites your heart the most? What do you live for? Sadly, we live more and more in a world full of distractions, full of fool's gold that captures our hearts and our attention and and takes us all away from Christ. We all have something. And the hearts of many are therefore captured by career or relationships or money or health or entertainment or, or whatever. But these are all empty treasure chests. Not to say, for example, we don't you know, value our relationships, but it can't be your ultimate treasure. These will never satisfy your soul or direct your life to God. Instead, you have to realize Christ himself, he's the only treasure worth pursuing. He is to be first in all things. Only he can satisfy your soul. Remember that Jesus died for you on the cross. He paid the penalty for all your sins. He purchased your forgiveness, your your seat in heaven, so to speak. And he invites you there if you believe, you follow, if you deny self and follow him. So you must believe. You must submit your life to him in faith. You must follow him and then you must treasure him. You have to see his infinite value. Jesus is the pearl of great price worth giving up everything in order to to buy that pearl, to gain that pearl. And so I pray you gain him by faith. Consider your life this morning. Consider all the stuff that has gotten in the way of your relationship with Christ and replaced him. And if you've lost sight of him or if if you've been stuck in the atmosphere, just, just drop down, get down to Christ. 
Know him. Go back to the cross. Go back to the gospels. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It will bring you to him. And then live out your union with him. Make your relationship with Christ the most important relationship in your life, reflected in your time, your energy, your devotion. Truly give Christ first place in all things. And just watch how he fills your life with joy and meaning and purpose and hope. For this is eternal life, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ to earth, whom you saw fit to make supreme over all things. You sent him to be the savior of the lost. And that's us, Lord. We were lost, yet in Christ we, were, we can be found. We were blind, yet in him we can see. Deaf, now we can hear. He is our savior. He is of infinite value, both for who he is, being the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the, the, the perfect God-man in the incarnation. And he's of infinite value because of what he has done as well. Christ, you gave your life up for us on the cross. You, you bore the full weight of God's wrath toward our sins to purchase our, our place, our forgiveness, our reconciliation. You rose from the dead. You conquered death itself and you offer us this life, life that we were, in a sense, created for, Life with God, life meant to be lived in relationship and fellowship with our creator. Sin took us away, but you, Lord, offer us a way back. And I pray all here have found that way back through confessing you, through believing in you. And I pray all here, likewise, get it right. Get what what Christianity is, is about. It's about you, Lord. It's about knowing you and treasuring you and then simply living in light of and enjoying our treasure. Then, Lord, we can say along with your servant Paul, life is Christ. We want to live for Christ. We want to live out Christ. We want to follow him as his true disciples. And as we come to treasure him, Lord, then and only then can we find death as gain. Death is scary. It's the great unknown. It presents to us the end of the line in this life, Lord, but this is the test of faith. We believe in you and, and we trust we will gain more of Christ when we cross that threshold. And so we can even smile at the future, Lord. Give us this comfort as you build up our faith and encourage us all here to make more of Christ. If we leave here today with that, we leave here today with much. So we thank you for your word. May it work its way into our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.